1: Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl,
2: And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. So
1: Rick, a, a, a lot to uh, talk about here. Also I, I have to tell you we have a big guest in the second half of this show, uh, Maryland Governor Larry Hogan, a uh, friend of the podcast. He's been on before, also a potential a presidential candidate. I mean, you know, who knows? Uh, out with a new book. We'll be talking with him shortly. But first, I, I spent a long time yesterday in the Rose Garden, which is a beautiful place, by the way. But it was ninety degrees. The sun was blazing. Not a cloud in the sky. And I was out there for, you know, probably closer to two hours than an hour uh, uh, for the president's event. It was out there, you know, first waiting for it to start for about a half an hour, and then. Um, I have to say, and you've probably heard me say variations of this in the past, so you can call me on that, but one of the strangest experiences that I've ever had in the Rose Garden now, so I'm going gonna, gonna to isolate it to in, in the Rose Garden, um, a full-on campaign rally style speech, and actually a little bit of a strange one. Can I? Do you mind if I play you just a little, a little clip here? Let's is that do okay? it, yeah. Okay, so just, just to set it up, this is... And, and and like I said, the president spoke for, for an hour out there, so it's hard to pick something to kind of encapsulate it. But at one point he was going through, I believe uh, some description he had dug up somewhere of some of Biden's policies, I think. Again, it's hard to follow. Mandate net zero carbon emissions for homes, offices, and all new buildings by 2030. That basically means no windows, no nothing. It's very hard to do. Abolish educational standards. Abolish in the suburbs. You're going to abolish the suburbs with this. So we're abolishing windows. We're abolishing the suburbs. We're abolishing educational standards. Um, uh, but he went all over the place. I mean, he talked about. I mean, we had a we had a where's where's Hunter moment in there. He talked about uh, how Hunter Biden, the the vice, the former vice president's son, left China with over a billion dollars. He made it sound like he got on the plane carrying suitcases full of cash. You know, uh, you know, completely untrue, by the way. But just kind of a strange thing to be hearing from the president of the United States uh, in a Rose Garden event. You know, we used to talk about a Rose Garden strategy,
2: uh, (laughs) which would be you
1: know the president basically doing official policy announcements and avoiding. Uh, you know, the messiness of a campaign. Well, instead, this was the president bringing the messiness of a campaign right to the Rose Garden, but in a very meandering and, I have to say, kind of odd, odd, odd way. And by the way, by the way, uh, it was billed as a press conference. He did take four questions, if you include the question from OAN. Um, Obviously, did not call on me and didn't take any, you know, frankly, any, any, any serious questions.
2: And this is in place of the rallies. Of course, he couldn't have the rally in New Hampshire over the weekend, Exciting um, weather that actually didn't even materialize. Uh, a glimpse into President Trump's mind at this moment. Uh, he is, it's not that he isn't being told about ways that he can win this campaign, ways he's, he can refocus attention. Um, but with Joe Biden out there now saying more about his campaign, the president has a lot on his mind. And this is the entire kitchen sink and more in terms of Uh, how he plans and what he's thinking about the president. So much of this was just unscripted, John. This was just him riffing. Uh, It looked like he was consulting some notes at times. Um, He he, he certainly had a lot that he wanted to talk about, but it was all over the place and notably was not on point for the big story that's consuming the country, consuming his presidency, uh, consuming a lot of the thought of even people in the West Wing, which is COVID-19 and its fallout. This came, comes at the same time that uh, some of his aides are declaring open warfare on Dr. Anthony Fauci. Uh, it, it's remarkable how this president has sought to change people's focus on things, uh, change the attention of the American people, hijack news cycles. Uh, in this case, I, I just don't know what to make of it. I, I don't know what the takeaway is. I, don't, I think we make a mistake in trying to ascribe political strategy to what we're seeing from this president and from this White House at this moment
1: yeah it, it certainly uh i didn't feel particularly uh strategic uh but the president in, in one of the, the kind of spookiest parts of the whole thing is at the very end he said we'll be doing more of these <laughs> so okay. i don't know if this <laughs> is going to become the thing like the afternoon rally uh speech in the rose garden yeah but, but john uh, we, we'll we should we we'll should see.
2: we should note though that this is this is a momentous occasion for for other reasons i mean today yeah, no, is really actually is. the the end of a presidential term, if I'm if I have it right in my calendar. Am I right about that, John? Is this is this the end? Are you talking about mine? I, I might be. Yes. Yes. The the outgoing president of the White House Correspondents Association is joining us on the podcast today, and we're honored to have you, John.
1: Um, well, uh, actually, I, I should point out that I will be president of the White House Correspondents Association tomorrow as well, but only until about nine o'clock in the morning.
2: Oh, OK. So when, uh, get, last full so cool day. I'm, so I'm like, getting together
1: the, my list of pardons and commutations and, uh, you know, various things, uh, you know, that, that you know that you do in your last day. Yes, last yes.
2: I, day. I, I'm looking forward to hearing hearing about all of this. But, but John, you went out with, um, you know, something of a something of a parting shot, uh, the, your op ed. In the, in the Washington Post over the weekend. Um, I, I was struck by, it. Can, I, can, I, can I read a little bit from it? I want to I talk a sure, little bit about your sure. takeaways from this year. Okay, so you write that you've often advocated the return of regular White House briefings from the, by the press secretary, which of course lapsed in 2018. Um, I think the White House spokesperson has an obligation to regularly answer questions about the policies and pronouncements of the executive branch. You go on to write denying reality using the white house podium for purely political purposes is a violation of public trust i still believe it is the duty of the white house press secretary to regularly hold briefings but not like this talking about the current white house press secretary Uh, defend yourself here john because i I, you you have always been on the side of having briefings of wanting to have those briefings why shouldn't kaylee McEnany? why shouldn't this white house be able to to do the job the way they want to do it.
1: First of all, I have to say in, in all seriousness, um, I, um, I, I did this reluctantly. Um, I have interacted with now, I, I may be on press secretary number 15. I, I've lost track because they've, they've started to come in rapid succession here. Um, but I've, I've been in that briefing room uh, with press secretaries of four different presidents. And, you know, as a White House reporter, you have to interact with the press office and you deal with the press office and you may, there's a natural tension there. Uh, I've certainly, you know, I've certainly had tension with other press secretaries. I've respected them. I've gotten along with them. I've, you know, I mean, it, you know, you, you, you have to do your job. Um, so I, I don't look for opportunities to say something like this. Um, but I felt that I really had to uh, because I believe um, that, we, I, 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 and and I don't, I don't mean to sound too earnest here, Rick, but I, I, I believe that is a really important position. I believe the White House press secretary, in 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 a democracy like ours, uh, that there is. Uh, great symbolic value, even when there is not, um, even when there is limited value in terms of information that is trans, that is transpiring, which does happen under all presidents, all press secretaries. There are times where you wonder what was that all about. But I believe that for the American public to see the president's spokesperson, the spokesperson for the most powerful person in our federal government, uh, step before the press and take questions of all kinds and uh, provide information. Um, is, is is very valuable. It sends a message to the country. It sends a message to the world. Um, we uh, you know it, it's it can be the press secretary comes out there even when the news is bad and even when they know they're going to get you know face a pummeling of questions about something unfortunate that has happened or a controversy still comes out there. Um, I think of Mike McCurry back in the day. Uh, you know, of uh, having to come out there during, during the Monica Lynch The, the flak jacket is, is, I mean, is basically
2: yeah, yeah, passed there's, down press secretary to press secretary. Yeah,
1: yeah there's a tradition of a, of a flak jacket being, being left, uh, you know, to the press secretary because you, you take a lot of incoming. Um, but, you know, there's a huge difference, I believe, between the spokesperson for the president of the United States who accepts a government salary uh, and serves as the top spokesperson for the federal government and... A spokesperson for a political campaign or a political party. Um, I, I, you know, I believe that there is a line that you do not cross, and I think that you know all press secretaries uh, serve at the pleasure of the president that uh, ha- that hires them, um, but they also uh, serve a, a public function, a public service role. Um, and Mike McCurry uh, has pointed out that the press secretary's office is located at precisely the midpoint. If you're walking through the West Wing, if you go out of the, um, between the press uh, briefing room and the and the Oval Office, if you go out the door of the press secretary's office and you turn right, you go about 20 paces and you're going to be in the Oval Office. You turn left, you go about 20 paces, you're going to be in the White House briefing room. So you, you represent the president's views to the press and the president's, talk about the president's actions and the actions of his staff, but you also represent the press to, to, to the White House. and you are the mechanism for giving an information from the presidency from the executive branch to the american people through a press corps that the american people get much of their information from it's very simple and um but 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 these have become almost no information transpiring and purely political um i think the only difference between uh, the uh, campaign spokesperson. What we're seeing now at the podium is that the podium is more high-profile, and they figured this is a better place to do it. Um, and let me just give you a couple, a, a couple of quick examples. One, actually, that I did not mention in my, um, in my op-ed, it illustrates one theme of these briefings, which are instead of to try to answer questions from the press, it's to vilify the press and try to undermine the credibility of the press in the eyes of the of the people watching. So this was one exchange when the issue of churches reopening came up and the president was calling for all churches to reopen and, you know, folks were asking, well, how's this going to be done safely with social distancing and and et cetera. And very legitimate series of questions. And listen to how Kelly McEnany turned it all around.
3: What specific the provision
1: of federal law allows the president to override a governor's decision? The president decision. will
3: strongly encourage every governor to allow their churches to reopen. And boy, it's interesting to be in a room that desperately wants to seem to see these churches and houses of worship stay no, closed. But the president yes. said yes. that he has Do yeah, I
1: object to that. I mean, I go to church. I'm dying to go back to church. The question that we're asking you and would like to have asked the president and Dr. Birx is, is it safe? And if it's not safe, is the president trying to encourage that, or does the president agree with Dr. Birx
2: that people should wait?
3: Jeff, it is safe to reopen your churches.
1: The reason why I play that is is she is saying that the reporters in that room desperately want to keep churches and houses of worship closed. That is a slander on the press corps. It is not true, and is not within the the job description of a press secretary uh, to say something like that. Now, let me give you another example which I did cite in the uh, op-ed. The issue of the president's tweet where he uh, basically ac- accused Bubba Wallace, the only African-American full-time NASCAR driver, of perpetrating a hoax, something that was simply not true and another slander, and suggesting that NASCAR had made a mistake in banning the Confederate flag. So this was a question that was asked of Cayley uh, in, in the briefing, why, you know, why does he feel this way about the Confederate flag? Uh, what messages he's sending and she through a series of non-answers was trying to redefine what the president said and you can read it in black and white on his twitter feed and that led me to follow up let's drill down on on the confederate flag does he think it was a mistake for nascar to
3: ban it the president said he wasn't making a judgment one way or the other you're focusing on on one word at the very bottom of a tweet that's completely taken out of context and neglecting the complete rush to judgment you you know i was asked probably 12 questions about the Confederate flag. Uh, this president's focused on action, and I'm a little dismayed that I didn't receive one question on the deaths that we got in this country this weekend. I didn't receive one question about New York City shootings doubling for the third straight week.
1: Again, just in terms of factual, all I did was ask, what is the president's position on the flag? And that led the press secretary to turn around and say I was taking the president completely out of context and neglecting, da-da-da-da-da-da. No. I I wasn't taking anything out of context. First of all, it wasn't one word. It wasn't at the end of the tweet. Uh, Turning that around and then lecturing the reporters for not asking about crime in New York City, which if the president had a new initiative on crime in New York City that he was announcing, maybe that would have been, or, or if she had stuck around for a little while longer, uh, maybe that was something that they could be asked about. Uh, and then finally, we've had this issue uh, just over the last day or so, Rick, about the um, the administration uh, being so critical of Dr. Anthony Fauci, the government's leading expert on infectious diseases, a member of the coronavirus task force. Um, so. He, this is <laughs> the question was asked. This is just two days ago. The question was asked um, of, of Kelly McEnany about you know why the White House was saying negative things and releasing negative information about Dr. Fauci. This was her answer.
3: We provided a direct response to a direct question, um, and that's about it. And to the notion that there's opposition research and that there's Fauci versus the president couldn't be further from the truth. Dr. Fauci and the president have always had a very good working relationship. Yeah.
1: So, Rick, there you heard the words she said, uh, and this was just, just a couple days ago in the briefing room, the notion of Fauci versus the president couldn't be further from the truth. Couldn't be further from the truth. Well, <laughs> I almost don't know where to start here. The, the, she, she said that in the briefing room hours before um, Dan Scavino, who is technically higher than Kaylee McEnany on the org, org chart at the White House, the deputy chief of staff of communications, Uh, had tweeted out, not tweeted out, it was on his Facebook page, this cartoon ridiculing Fauci, saying, shut him off, and, you know, uh, portraying Fauci in this weirdness like a big water uh, faucet, um, and uh, accusing him of being responsible for leaks and all kinds of horrible things. Um, I mean, that that was... Something that had happened before, she said, that this notion of any kind of conflict between the president and Fauci couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, Today, you have uh, Peter Navarro publish an op-ed in USA Today uh, saying that uh, essentially Fauci has been wrong on virtually everything he's talked to him about. Now, I thought that was interesting because he's written books on trade. He is uh, a guy that's run for office five times. Lost five times, but he's run for office five times. Um, And as far as I can tell in the bio, has absolutely no experience in medicine or public health.
2: Correct. And and he is on the White House payroll and he and the, the White House has been saying that he he, he went rogue with this with this op ed. But clearly there. And we, we also know that they had prepared a, a kind of dossier of the oppo packet of, of areas where they say that uh, that Anthony Fauci has been wrong. And you and look, separate from the, the politics or even the policy of this, the point that I think you're making here is about honesty. And we've come to expect a degree of spin um, and even maybe all out pretty close to falsehoods in in politics. But uh, the distinction that I think is interesting here is uh, that you're getting at is is coming from the White House itself, whether that's the president uh, in the Rose Garden or in this case, the White House press secretary in the briefing room uh, stating things that are outright falsehoods and doing it for what would appear to me to be blatantly political reasons, right? You have a press secretary who came directly from the campaign um, and and now a president who is conducting his campaign from the White House through the White House.
1: Yeah. So and, and and but but you're right. So the reason why I mean the reason why I wrote this is you know this is happening here. Um, I don't know if the current press secretary would respond to this in a way that would say okay you know maybe you have a point. I'm gonna I'm gonna tone down the politics and the. You know the vilification of the press and get to the the function of the job. Uh, maybe that won't happen. I can guess which of those two scenarios is more likely. But I wrote this because I truly believe that this needs to be an aberration. We have seen it in this White House. Um, we can't see it in another White House. I uh, the, the the there is. There is this is one of those norms. There are maybe some norms that were that, 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 that need to be questioned to go away. but I think this is one of those norms that is kind of a bedrock to our democracy in the modern age. Uh, a, a press secretary is a public servant, uh, should never, ever, ever uh, knowingly say something that is untrue for sure, but also shouldn't blatantly, engage in pure politics, uh, can put spin, can, you know, represent the president's positions and his policies in the best possible light, but needs to answer questions, thinking in the back of his or her mind that I am answering this as somebody on the public payroll, somebody paid for by Democrats and Republicans and independents, somebody who is, uh, whose credibility is essential because I am a I am a mouthpiece for the federal government, so my credibility, you know, is, is in some degree a reflection of the credibility of, of, the, of the United States government. So, you know, am I being naive in laying out this? I, I, I don't know. Call me naive, but I, I, I really, truly feel strongly about that, and, um, you know, that's, what I've, that's a message I've conveyed as president of the White House Correspondents Association time and time again in my private interactions. Uh, with um, you know, with with this White House, and frankly, with campaigns, we also we also talk to the other campaigns um, because we have we have issues in terms of, of campaign coverage. Um, but you you know, I I, I I we we cannot lose this. We cannot lose this idea of you know of of, of that that briefing room is not a campaign venue. That briefing room is a place where the United States government speaks to the people of the United States and the world through the members of the
2: media. And Mr. President, can we thank you for your service? What a what a year it's been! I mean, we, you take on a job like this. Um, I would even say, I mean, John, you said you wrote this reluctantly. You kind of took the job on a bit reluctantly, as I recall, as well. Uh, it's not like you needed extra work or extra responsibility with the with the with the the, the, the correspondence association. But um, I can't imagine a more tumultuous year to have been uh, part of that uh, or heading up that organization.
1: Yeah, if you, if you uh, remember, because I think I spoke to you about it as it was happening. Um, you know the, the the challenges dealing with with this White House were massive. I was you know you run you run, actually I ran in twenty seventeen because you, you, you get you get elected and then you don't serve your term as president until the third year uh, that you're in this position. And I really you know the, the 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 challenges of uh, just covering this White House are so immense. The time commitment, uh, the idea of taking this on um, was was not something I was uh, enthusiastic about. And then. Uh, on the day before, on the day that the filing deadline was, uh, the president had a Rose Garden press conference, and it was one <laughs> where um, uh, Mueller had recently been appointed. James Comey had just um, had just testified before Congress for the first time, uh, 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 you know, since being fired. And I asked the president if he would willingly testify before Robert Mueller and the special counsel. And he told me 100% yes, 100% yes, I would under oath. And I would just see, it was such a surreal moment with all that was swirling around. I I went from that press conference, which ended, as I recall, at about a little before three o'clock. The filing deadline was four o'clock and I put my name down to run. And I was like, oh man, I don't know what I've just done. And, uh, but I, I, you know, it's been, it's been an, it's been a very challenging job, but I, I do think that it's been an important job. I'm also the first president of the White House Correspondents Association since, I think, World War II to fail uh, to have a White House Correspondents. I, so, yeah. um, so, I didn't want to, yeah, I didn't want to mention that, mean, that blemish I mean, on your I mean, record, you know. but, you know. <laughs> and, and some people think that's like the main job of the U.S.A., <laughs> so, uh, you know. Anyway, um, it was going to be such a great dinner, by the way. It was going to be such a great dinner. All right, we'll be back in just a moment with Governor Larry Hogan of the great state of Maryland.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory— Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
1: Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. We are joined now by the governor of Maryland, Larry Hogan. Also, by the way, the author of a soon to be published book, maybe the most talked about book right now, right, Rick? Uh, still Standing, Surviving Cancer Riots and the Toxic Politics that Divide America. Governor Hogan, thank you for joining us.
4: Well, thank you for having me. It's great to be with you.
1: So uh, there's been a lot of talk about the uh, the, the timing of your book. You've obviously, uh, y- you've got quite an interesting personal story to tell. You're um, uh, surviving cancer, your battle with cancer, uh, your <laughs> battles with a... Uh, uh, a, a president of your own party in the White House, um, and you're about to go on tour. I, I, I know something about doing a, a a book tour during the time of of, of a pandemic. It, it ends up being a virtual tour. Uh, but there's been quite a bit of speculation that this is the beginning of a of a presidential campaign or a possible presidential campaign. Where, where are you on that? Or could, could, I know we, we, we talked about you perhaps running in 2020. That did not happen. Are, are, are you looking ahead to uh, to a presidential campaign in 2024
4: well look i I really think it's uh, far too early to be talking about 2024 I, I know that there's obviously speculation and, and and certainly a lot of people write books for the purpose of trying to seek uh, higher office and Honestly, that was not the purpose of this book, and it was in the works for quite a while. Um, I just I I believe that I had an interesting personal story. A lot of people kept telling me, "Hey, with the experiences that we've been through, uh, you know, winning the biggest upset in America in 2014, how did you do that?" Going through this personal battle with cancer, and then facing 90 days into my term, the, the the worst violence in 47 years in our biggest city, and how we dealt with the riots, and then the whole all the things that we accomplished in the state of maryland and and then in a a really big blue wave year being uh, reelected in a landslide as as republicans were losing across america um, and then uh, leading the the nation's governors uh, dealing with the administration and the coronavirus uh, pandemic so it was just a, a good time to do a story i also had some thoughts about you know, the, where I thought um, my Republican Party ought to, ought to go in the future and uh, and some thoughts about the direction of the country and about the nature of our uh, divisive politics in America today, which is something I've been talking about for six years. So, it, it's it, you know, I still have a day job, a really important one uh, until January of twenty twenty three. And we have another election coming up in one hundred and some days. And so uh, it's really not about twenty twenty four.
1: And, and you would think that in terms of the future of, of, of your party, uh, you're, you're a voice that will be listened to. You are um, one of the most popular governors looking at just approval ratings uh, in, in, in America. And as you mentioned, as you mentioned, managed to do that in a state that is that is dominated by Democrats. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's not, not an easy accomplishment. Well, so, I think that's one of the things that the Republican Party
4: is going to have to focus on, and I've talked about this, and I talk about it in my book, about how we're going to appeal to a, a wider uh, a group of people. It's it's something that, you know, Ronald Reagan talked about, you know, a bigger tent, and he did a really good job of reaching across the aisle, of re- reaching those Reagan Democrats and, and attracting independents with a positive, kind of hopeful message about the direction of America. and. Um, and it, it, that, that's sort of, uh, you know, Haley Barber, a good friend of mine, used to, you know, uh, run the RNC. And he had a great line about successful politics is about addition and multiplication, not subtraction and division. And that's, we've kind of proved how to do that uh, by winning Democrats and independents, not just Republicans overwhelmingly, but black voters and suburban women. And uh, if the Republican Party is going to be successful in winning, uh, races in the future, they're going to have to look to some of the things that we've done. If we can do that here in Maryland, then there's no place in America then that those same kinds of, uh, of principles can't be successful.
1: So let, let me ask you a question, though, about, about this upcoming election. I, I spoke recently to a very prominent former elected official, Republican, um, as, as diehard a Republican as, as, as there has ever been who told me that he believes that the party would actually be, be better off losing and even losing rather decisively uh, in, in 2020 to see a big, a big loss for, for Donald Trump, uh, because that would give the opportunity for the party to, to rebuild um, and not have to endure another four years of what, of what we have seen. What's what's your view on that? Is, is, the, is, the, is the long-term health of the party, is, is, are the Republicans better off if Trump loses?
4: I, I'm not sure I want to speculate on, on that and, and that's why probably why you have an unnamed uh, Republican source there, but I've heard that kind of, uh, I've heard those opinions expressed before. Uh, uh, look, the, the concern I have is if you look at the last election, uh, back when I was just reelected in 2018, it was a brutal year for Republicans. Um, you know, I, uh, it was a tough, tough night on election. I, we lost, uh, folks like, uh, you know, Scott Walker in, 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 Wisconsin and, and Governor Rauner, uh, we, we lost, I think five governor's races. We lost the house of representatives. We lost seven, uh, legislative chambers and 350, some legislative seats, uh, you know, I happen to do the opposite of that in a blue state because we won all of those constituencies that the Republican Party lost everywhere. Um, I'm concerned that on the course that we're heading in the presidential race with the divisive rhetoric, with the kind of uh, doubling down on appealing to the, uh, the core of the base, that we're not reaching out. Uh, The way we've done here, that we're not going to win over those swing voters, those independents, those suburban voters, and college educated voters. And we're not doing anything to try to broaden our base as we have done here, you know, getting 70% approvals among black voters and, uh, you know, reaching out and winning uh, uh, independents, you know, nearly 80%. Those are the things that the Republican Party is going to have to figure out. And and I don't know that we can, I don't think we're going to do that in this election. Uh, but we're going to have to take a close look, regardless of what happens in November, and regardless of who wins uh, in the in this election of 2020. I think the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, for that matter, because I think they've uh, they, they've kind of veered off uh, it, it too far to the left for most people in America, and I think that the average person in America is just frustrated with the entire political process and the fact that the, the politics has gotten so divisive and angry. Uh, and uh, that they also feel like it's just complete dysfunction in Washington where all we do is argue and where nothing ever gets done. So I, I think we're going to have, we're all going to have to take a look at where, is, where are the political parties heading uh, and where's the country going to be heading after this election in November. And uh, I, I just, uh, I'm going to try to be a part of that discussion. Uh, and that's really you know one of the things that we try to talk about in this book.
2: Governor Hogan, you, you, you build up in this book to the, the COVID-19 crisis, um, and I think this this actually fits in with what you're talking about with the, the perception of dysfunction in Washington. An op-ed just today in USA Today, Peter Navarro, an assistant to the president for trade policy, um, quote, this is the headline, Anthony Fauci has been wrong about everything I've interacted with him on. What is your view of Dr. Fauci, and what is your view of the of the wisdom, both politically and public health-wise, of uh, of White House officials, White House staffers at war with Anthony Fauci?
4: I think it's absolutely outrageous. Uh, It's one of the biggest mistakes, I think, that the administration has made throughout this entire uh, coronavirus uh, response, because Dr. Fauci is, uh, in my opinion, the most respected uh, guy in the administration and the voice of truth and reason, Uh, throughout this pandemic. Now, you know, has he been right on every single thing? No, but he's a guy that I trust and listen to, and I think most of America does. And I've, you know, I've, as the chairman of the uh, National Governors Association, I've led, I think, 30-some calls with the president, vice president, the coronavirus task force, and all the governors. I've interacted with uh, Dr. Fauci, you know, all of these times, uh, going back to February, when I had him come speak to the National Governors Association to address us on the on the looming crisis. Uh, I don't think there's anybody in America who has more credibility on this crisis than Dr. Anthony Fauci. And uh, there's a number of of mistakes that have been made. But I think sidelining uh, him and uh, trying to run this campaign to uh, attack his credibility is one of their biggest mistakes so far.
2: Governor, I want to ask you about an item in the news this week that impacts your state. Um, a lot of people may not know this, but the the Washington football team actually plays in Maryland, uh, in, in yeah. your state of Maryland. One of the two football teams that uh, that call Maryland home. Uh, I noticed uh, b- back in 2014, when you were campaigning for governor the first time, uh, you you expressed support for the the name. You said, yeah. um, uh, "quote I also understand that people are offended by the name, but a lot of people are offended by Washington. Maybe we should, they should drop that from the name." You even attacked. Anthony Brown, who you're running out, uh, running against at the time for what you said was hypocrisy in, in in calling them out on the name. What changed in your mind? How do you square your yeah. position in 2014 with where you where you stand on the nickname now, which is now being retired, as we know?
4: Yeah, well, sure. Yeah, I, in 2014, I, look, I grew up uh, in Prince George's County uh, as a lifelong uh, fan of the team, uh, and. Uh, yeah, uh, when I, I called out Anthony Brown, it was because he was a huge Redskins fan, wearing Redskins paraphernalia and attending all the games, and and and, and going to the governor's uh, box to, and promoting the Redskins everywhere, and then was calling them out. Uh, so, but I, I think a lot of people's. Uh, a lot of people's positions have changed. but the joke was I, I was offended by the, the Redskins and by the team of Washington because the name Washington right. because everybody's discussed it with Washington as well. Uh, but 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 yeah, I called uh, recently I, I I called for the name change. It just uh, uh, I, I just think we've reached that point. it, it, it I think everybody realizes uh, that uh, it's a racially insensitive slur. and even though it had this long tradition over so many years, i guess eighty five years or so and and, uh, and a lot of people that, uh, just identified with the team and the logo and all that, that, uh, people, it was time to re-examine it and to uh, retire the name. And, um, uh, I'm, I'm very happy to have the two, uh, the NFL teams in the state of Maryland and, uh, we're excited and looking forward to, uh. To a new name and a new start uh, for the team from uh, Washington. That that's actually the team from Maryland, and uh, and we're uh, hoping that maybe this will help them win some games too, because their, their record hadn't been so good lately. So maybe the maybe it'll give them a new start.
1: So but before you go, let, let me just ask you about uh, the 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 president's uh, statements since since we've you know, in, in, basically in the wake of the of the killing of George Floyd. I mean, it's been kind of remarkable to see. Just yesterday, he was asked a, a very basic question about, uh, you know, why it is that African Americans uh, are, are, you know, still find getting killed by police officers. It was a question that, frankly, has driven protests in all 50 states. And he was offended by the question, and he said, white people get killed, more white people get killed. And in, in a in a very kind of angry and, and, and dismissive way this comes after he of course you know tweeted video of, of one of his supporters or one of his apparent supporters saying white power uh, he's making a rather strenuous defense of the Confederate flag as free speech at a time when uh, the 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 Marines are are, are are banning display of the Confederate flag the uh, the, the obviously NASCAR has I mean his his uh, his defense secretary, his uh, his chairman, of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, have, have have talked on this, and the president's coming out and being like kind of the the, the one voice saying of the Confederate flag, quote, people love it. Um, what what is going on here, and how damaging is it to have at a time when overcoming racial divisions is is such an important uh, uh yeah. issue in our country to have the President of the United States saying and doing things like this
4: I think it's uh, it's completely uh, wrong it's uh, it's extremely uh, damaging and uh, it's the complete opposite of the message that the president ought to be sending out it's it's quite frankly uh, disgraceful and you know I, I've been one of the few Republicans that uh, has not been afraid of of, of standing up and speaking out when I think the president's wrong. And on this issue, he's completely dead wrong. And uh, I, I just don't understand it. I, I really don't know where it's coming from, but it's the last thing that we need. It, it goes back to our earlier discussion about, you know, my whole focus uh, has been about trying to bring people together, uh, trying to avoid divisive rhetoric. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I, I've made such an effort to reach out uh, to bridge the gap, uh, to try to to work hard, to uh, uh, to to reach out into the black community, which is uh, you know, we've been very successful with that. I, I think at this time in America, as we're as we're dealing with these raw emotions and trying to deal with uh, the issues of racism, to, to have the president of the United States make inflammatory comments like that, uh, it, it's just outrageous, and I think it's uh, it's bad for the country, it's bad for the Republican Party, and it's bad for Donald Trump.
1: Well, Governor Hogan, you have never hesitated in, uh, in speaking your mind, and, and, and we appreciate you doing it with us now, uh, here. And we look forward to to, uh, to your book. It's out at the end of uh, end of July twenty eighth, right?
4: Right. Yep. Well, thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity.
1: All right. Take care, Governor. Thank you for joining us.
4: All right.
2: Thanks, guys. Thank you, Governor. Thanks.
1: Well, Rick, uh, some some strong words uh, there from uh, from Governor Hogan
2: so i heard the phone ringing in his office at the end there <laughs> it's, <laughs> the, it's the, the white house the white house so on the line, yeah. no look i mean look we, we first we first talked to uh governor hogan um more than a year ago now um when he was being rumored as a potential challenger to, to president trump in 2020 and he got quite a bit of traction around that um i knew a lot of operatives who were ready to sign on to that bid they loved the story of a of a blue state uh, governor whose father has uh, had this amazing political lineage uh, as the only Republican um, to have voted against any of the articles of impeachment against President Nixon. Uh, it seemed like a compelling biography for the time for the moment. But what was missing was any oxygen inside the Republican Party for such a run. And I talked to people close to the governor at the time. If he saw a window, he would have taken it. He did not. And we've and seen that play out. At the presidential level, where those who did run, like Joe Walsh, like Bill Welch, got no traction whatsoever. uh, There was no daylight between Republican primary voters and President Trump, uh, which is itself remarkable. Same thing down ballot. And as much as much as we've seen the Lincoln Project and uh, a couple of other groups really get a lot of buzz online and on cable with anti-Trump messaging, it didn't it didn't materialize into any. Significant intra-party uh, window, but that said, you start to hear from Governor Hogan about what a tr- post-Trump world looks like, and uh, the, the the polling numbers uh, and the the growing. F- feeling among Democrats and Republicans both that President Trump uh, is in real trouble regarding his reelection has accelerated some of that talk Uh, and and Governor Hogan I think is making clear with this book and I think clear with where he's positioned himself that uh, that he is uh, putting himself in the mix as uh, an heir to the Republican Party on the other side of Trump um, with the calculation that Republicans are going to be doing a lot of soul searching uh, after January.
1: And, and and the real question is where does that soul searching lead? Does the party become? Uh, does the party reject Trumpism? Does the party become more Trumpy? I mean, wh- where does it go? This former top elected uh, uh, official Republican, who I referred to in my question to uh, to Governor Hogan, uh, pointed out that the Republican Party uh, uh, suffered you know a massive and embarrassing defeat in 1964 uh, with, with Barry Goldwater. But by 1966, uh, the Republicans picked up, I think it was 47 seats in the House. One of those newly elected freshman members was a guy by the name of George H.W. Bush. Hmm. Uh, They picked up three seats in the Senate. Um, And, you know, so I think part of the question is how bad are the losses and does that position uh, the party to, you know, to come back in, in a way that is kind of more ideologically pure or or in a way that rejects uh, uh, what what led to the losses, assuming uh, that's if there are losses. Anyway, Rick, that is all the time we have, but we will be back next week. Trevor Hastings, Avery Miller, thank you to our entire Powerhouse Politics team.